This is Dave Iverson, and welcome to Getting to a Cure, the science behind the search, our continuing series of interviews that focus on the latest scientific developments in Parkinson's disease research. Today, we focus on how genes create the proteins that are crucial to how our cells function and sometimes malfunction, leading to diseases like Parkinson's. Our guest is Dr. Brian Fisk, Vice President for Research Programs at the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Well, Brian, I think everyone sort of commonly understands at this point that a protein called alpha-synuclein plays a key role in Parkinson's disease, that somehow it clumps together and causes damage in the brain. But I think if we go back a few steps, that's where for many of us, I think it gets murky. You know, where, what are these proteins? Where do they come from? How do they get made? What goes wrong? All of those sorts of questions. So let's begin with that and have you walk us through a bit of a kind of protein primer, if you will. So where, where do, what are they exactly, Brian, and, and where do they come from? Yeah, so I, you know, proteins are uh, critical components of how cells work. And I think one of the, the, the key concepts in thinking about the cells in our body is that we have lots of different types of cells, uh, blood cells, brain cells, heart cells, skin, bone muscle, et cetera, et cetera. You know, each of these cells has sort of a different you know, function and role in our bodies. All these cells share, essentially most cells, uh, the same set of genetic material or DNA. And that DNA is really the core genetic information. We get that obviously inherited from our parents. So within the DNA, there are things called genes, which are just subsections of the DNA. Uh, And each of those genes essentially represents a recipe for how to make a protein in the cell, a particular type of protein. The cell reads the recipe, uh, and then it uh, uses that recipe to instruct the cell to make a particular type of protein. So that sort of basic concept, again, from, I think, DNA to a protein is really core and fundamental to, to understanding what proteins do in cells. I think part of why this topic is sometimes a little hard for us to sort through is what we mean when we talk about proteins in the sense you're describing, and as opposed to the proteins that we all consume, like we all think about, you know, that it's important to consume protein. And I've had the question come up many times, actually, at at patient education, Parkinson's disease conferences, where someone will say, well, if Parkinson's is a problem where, you know, proteins go wrong, should I limit how much protein I consume? So can you help us understand the difference in those two concepts and what it is that proteins are that we're describing in Parkinson's disease and how that's different in the protein that you might take into your body? Exactly, yeah. So maybe the, the way to think about that question is, again, to go back to what proteins are made of. So when we consume protein, either from plants or animals, what our bodies are doing is essentially breaking that protein down into amino acids, sort of the fundamental components. Those amino acids in different ways are then taken up by our cells and used and sort of recycled, if you will, to then generate protein within our cells. So that's when we talk about consuming protein that actually gets broken down and then those components get reused uh, to make protein uh, within our body. So with the proteins that seem to be key in Parkinson's uh, disease, the one that's, of course, most fundamental in our discussions is alpha-synuclein, which is, again, a gene makes that particular protein. Everyone has it, whether you have Parkinson's disease or not, everyone has that alpha-synuclein protein. What do we think goes amiss in Parkinson's disease? Maybe one way to think about this, when we, th- when we think about proteins that might 
sort of go bad, if you will, in Parkinson's disease, it's worth maybe just thinking about the different ways a protein can go bad in general. There are two or three ways that that can happen. One way, of course, is through genetic changes, where you actually have a mutation in the DNA sequence, the gene sequence, the instructions, the recipe for making that protein that actually then alters the sequence of amino acids that come together to make that protein, and that can lead to the protein functioning differently or how it interacts with other proteins in the cell, a whole variety of things that can happen because you've changed the recipe for how to make that protein. So that's one way. Another way that is often, in, and this is actually also uh, in the case of Parkinson's, one of the mechanisms we think uh, might be relevant, there are changes in either the DNA or in other proteins in the cell that can change how much or how little of the protein you make. And I think that's also a very important concept. So the protein itself may be, the recipe may be the same. You're still making the same apple pie, but maybe you're making way too much of it <laughs> or you're making not enough. And that can also have downstream consequences in that if you make too much, maybe the protein clogs up the system and, and can't be degraded or gotten rid of sufficiently and the sort of cell then suffers, or you make too little and you, you, there's actually not enough protein there to do the work that it needs to do. Uh, so that's another core part, this idea of changing how much protein you make. And the third sort of factor is sort of really this unknown factor, which is when external factors, it could be other um, factors within the cell or even environmental factors, maybe toxins that you consume that can impact how uh, proteins work but other factors that can come in and basically disrupt how the protein is doing its work, either by inhibiting it or, again, disrupting it in some way or breaking it down maybe inappropriately, so other sort of external factors. So those three core concepts, the sort of genetic change to the recipe, the change in how quantity of protein that you make, and the sort of external factors impacting the function of a protein, those are sort of the three core ways that you can essentially mess up the proteins in your cell. You've described these three ways in which proteins can go wrong. How does understanding one of those routes teach us about the whole? In other words, how does understanding the role that genes play help us understand that third route you described where there are external factors? So the history of our understanding of the role alpha-synuclein plays in Parkinson's started in the late 90s when uh, researchers found a genetic mutation in the alpha-synuclein gene that was linked in rare families to Parkinson's disease. And this was an actual change in the actual recipe for how to make the, the alpha-synuclein protein. They then very shortly after started looking in the brains of people with Parkinson's both with and without Parkinson's disease and found that the protein was clumped in pretty much everybody with Parkinson's disease, whether they had the genetic mutation or not. So that tells them uh, several things. One, that, okay, we could explain at least in a small percentage of people that their clumped alpha-synuclein is linked to a genetic change, but the large percentage of everybody else, it must be due to a different factor. And those are the people that, obviously, uh, scientists are studying very carefully to understand what other factors, other external factors, internal factors that might be causing their alpha-synuclein protein to, to clump up in the brain. But the core concept is here is we started with one signal, which was the genetic signal, and we used that as sort of a way to explore more broadly the role of alpha-synuclein clumping in Parkinson's disease, and that has sort of opened up our eyes to understanding how this disease might be caused. 
And how would, let's say tomorrow, we figured out a way to fix the alpha-synuclein gene mutation. How would that then help us figure out what goes wrong in those people who don't have that mutation, but still wind up with clumped up alpha-synuclein? Yeah. So uh, in thinking about how to therapeutically target alpha-synuclein, I I think you're asking an interesting question, which is, okay, could we go in and fix the genetic change in those individuals who have the genetic differences in their alpha-synuclein gene? Obviously, that would be one potential way. Whether that type of approach would help everybody else who doesn't have the genetic change is unclear. Now, the approach, frankly, that most drug makers are are using today is actually to be sort of agnostic to what might be causing your alpha-synuclein to clump. And they are taking the approach, which is, let's just get rid of the clumps. And so they're using approaches right now that are using a variety of different tricks, different types of uh, uh, drugs that can go in and sort of clear out those clumps of alpha-synuclein in the brain with the idea that if we can at least clear them out, regardless of what might be causing them, clear them out, we can at least maybe restore function in the brain. And that's sort of the approach people are taking right now, since we don't obviously know what the real cause is for, for that greater um, number of people who don't have the, uh, the genetic differences in their alpha-synuclein gene. Well, then let's let's talk about some of the other really interesting things that are going on and then how that might help us paint in the, the bigger picture. Because for the first time, just in this past year, we've seen clinical trials launched targeting two other genetic mutations that can lead to Parkinson's disease, uh, the LERC2 uh, mutation and the GBA mutation. Again, uh, two gene mutations that can lead to Parkinson's disease. Now, in these clinical trials, Brian, as I understand it, they are trying to correct that problem, right? So, How does that begin to sketch in, again, the broader picture? And how might insights from either of those trials give us a deeper understanding of Parkinson's disease that could apply to the broader Parkinson's population? So, yeah, so there are a couple of other uh, proteins uh, that have been sort of very uh, definitively linked to Parkinson's that that, um, scientists and drug makers are, are very interested in today. Uh, One of the proteins is a protein called LRRK2. LRRK2 is a protein that is encoded by or uh, has the instructions in the gene for LRRK2. In those individuals who carry the LERC2 mutation, their Parkinson's disease actually looks pretty similar to run-of-the-mill Parkinson's disease. So that was sort of um, uh, interesting uh, observation number one, including that a large percentage of these people have clumped alpha-synuclein in the brain. So we talked before about the idea that other genes could impact potentially how one protein is uh, behaving in a cell. In this case, it could be that genetic changes in LRK2 leading to protein changes in LRK2 protein could then ultimately impact how alpha-synuclein is clumped in the brain. Uh, What's interesting about LRK2, though, is the type of protein that it is. It's a type of protein in cells that chemically modifies other proteins, uh, and that's really a a core component of how cells send messages, if you will, within cells and even between cells. It is sort of like uh, a game of telephone, if you will, uh, down the line to uh, carry a message. What people found in people with the genetic difference in LRK2 was their protein was overactive. It seemed to be chemically modifying other proteins 
too much uh, because of the mutation that they had. Uh, and so drug makers looked at this and were able to very quickly uh, assess and say, okay, well, this is the type of protein we actually know how to make drugs against and know how to make drugs target and inhibit the activity of this type of protein. So we've seen a lot of progress and movement over the last several years in making that type of so-called LRRK2 inhibitor. Uh, and today we actually have a company, uh, Denali Therapeutics, that actually has uh, a LRRK2 inhibitor in uh, human testing. And so this is one of the first times that we've now seen that type of uh, uh, therapeutic be tested in people with this type of mutation. So we don't know yet if changes in LRK2 function are going to be seen in everybody with Parkinson's. So we, that's still an, an unanswered question. But we are, as we start to understand the role that LRK2 plays in the cell, that is starting to point to some possibilities that targeting LRK2 might actually be beneficial in people who don't have the mutation, mostly because we're starting to make links with between LRK2 and the downstream alpha-synuclein uh, pathology. And so it's possible that by manipulating LRK2 activity, we could ultimately impact how alpha-synuclein is processed in the cell. And that would then potentially be a, a therapy that everybody could take. And Brian, would that be through that messaging function you were talking about? If, if the LRRK2 or LRK2 protein has this impact on that messaging process then that might be tied to eventual impact on alpha-synuclein, and that's why this might be a kind of common pathway experience throughout Parkinson's? Uh, exactly, exactly. So I would say that, you know, today where you have this really long sort of arrow with a big question mark over it between LRK2 or LRK2 and uh, alpha-synuclein, so there's still a lot to know within that arrow uh, what the link might be. Um, but people are slowly starting to tease that apart and try to understand, is it through the signaling uh, role that LRK2 plays? Is it some impact LRK2 plays in cells that later on leads to alpha-synuclein uh, clumping? We don't know exactly for sure, but that's the idea is that as we can better understand uh, and sort of fill in the steps within that arrow, uh, we'll be able to then say, okay, aha, a drug that can inhibit LRK2 might actually impact the downstream biology that ultimately results in alpha-synuclein clumping. Huh. And is that also what's of interest in, in GBA, which is yet another one of these mutations that has been linked to Parkinson's disease? Does it also possibly inform something about that longer process that could be of use in understanding Parkinson's more, more broadly? Uh, yeah, so GBA, the protein, is an, uh, a different type of protein uh, that has a different type of function in the cell. Uh, that is, it's particularly involved in breaking down certain types of lipids or fats in, in, our, in our cells, and that's important for, you know, uh, making the, the, um, the, the components of our cellular membranes and other sort of uh, molecules that are needed for how our cells survive. When GBA is disrupted and the genetic change in the GBA gene seems to cause the GBA protein not to function as well as it should, what we think can happen is these uh, fat components in the cell can kind of accumulate and that might ultimately lead to, to, to cell uh, dysfunction. So what people are now doing with the GBA protein is using uh, drugs that can target 
and hopefully sort of reactivate that GBA protein, make it sort of function a little bit better so that we can sort of restore those, uh, that um, breakdown of those different fats uh, to make sure the cell can still survive. Um, and so that, again, similar to LRK2, the idea here is, as we've sort of uncovered and looked at the biology of people with GBA form of Parkinson's disease, Again, those people also, uh, the majority of those people also have clumps of alpha-synuclein in the brain when you look in their brains. Uh, and that, because of that, we think that GBA might play some role in that process. And again, with the idea that perhaps a GBA-targeting drug could ultimately impact how alpha-synuclein is processed in the cell. And therefore, even people who don't have the GBA genetic difference a GBA targeting drug could potentially be beneficial in them. Again, we don't know for sure yet, and companies right now are focused mostly on trying drugs out in people who have the, G the GBA genetic difference, but the idea is uh, you could potentially look uh, beyond those people as well. Which in a way, Brian, really brings us back to sort of why this area is so rich and so fundamental to our understanding of the disease, that it it starts with biology gone wrong in a sense, and then that can manifest itself in different ways. But it really means that understanding this at that very core level is what's going to provide us the key to understanding and then hopefully fixing Parkinson's. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think as we, you know, get to sort of peel away these different layers around the biology of disease. Uh, we start to see those commonalities and differences. It's, you know, uh, what may ultimately dictate whether you get Parkinson's versus some other disease, maybe the combination of biology that goes wrong. So there may be a core component that is linked to alpha-synuclein or LRK2 or GBA or, you know, any of the other sort of proteins that have been linked to Parkinson's in combination with other types of factors, even simple aging. We know as, you know, the most common risk factor for Parkinson's is getting old. Uh, and so it may be that in combination with some of those genetic and or protein differences, along with the fact that your cells are just getting older and can't handle the stress of being alive as much as they used to when you were younger, that that combination is what leads to Parkinson's versus, you know, other types of diseases that you might get uh, throughout life. So, but I think it only, we can only understand all that is in, once we've got all those different biological pieces uh, in the, of the puzzle figured out. You know, it's so interesting when I when I think back not so very long ago about sort of what we first talked about when we talked about Parkinson's disease was that, you know, uh, dopamine goes missing in the brain. I think about this entire conversation that we've just had, Brian, for the last half hour. And we haven't even talked about dopamine. So, I mean, it's just interesting to me that we're at, to me, this complicated but infinitely fascinating deeper level now when we talk about the disease. On the one hand, that makes it seem so much more complicated, which is a little disconcerting. On the other hand, if, as we find our way through this complication, it also seems like we're really getting closer to understanding the disease at its core. Do you feel that way as, as a scientist? Yeah, I, I think for me, when I sort of compare, you know, 10 years ago, say, when, when you know, in the Parkinson's space, to today, uh, I think as we've uncovered more of these genetic forms of Parkinson's and then through the genetics, sort of more of the biology that might underlie Parkinson's disease, um, not that we can explain every case of Parkinson's in this way, 
But I would say that we're starting to see what feels like a convergence of some of the biology around the, a few sort of basic functions for how, how cells work. And that, that gives us, I think, a little bit more sort of uh, meat on the bone, if you will, for us to then think about, okay, if that is just a general theme in Parkinson's, either protein clumping or how the cells degrade protein or, you know, any of these other sort of, you know, how cells move protein around is, is an area that people are starting to explore now. You then can think about, okay, well, let's come up with drugs that just impact that biology. So we may not have to necessarily make a protein that directly targets LRK2, but we know LRK2 is involved in some biological process that if we can just ramp up that process a little bit better, counter the effects of LRK2, then we may have a drug that can actually help a lot of different people, uh, regardless of their uh, specific uh, mechanism for how they got Parkinson's. So for me, that's, I think, I'm, where I'm seeing the excitement is, is that we're starting to narrow down, I think, a little bit around that biology. And again, it won't explain everybody's Parkinson's, and it may turn out that there are six different forms of Parkinson's out there based on their biology, and that just means we might need to think about making six, six different types of drugs. Um, but the fact that we, I think, are at a point where that is starting to feel more clear, I think, is what's exciting for me as a scientist. That was Dr. Brian Fisk, Vice President of Research Programs at the Michael J. Fox Foundation. To learn more about the gene-protein connection and why it's central to our understanding of Parkinson's disease, visit michaeljfox.org. I'm Dave Iverson. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.